I'm testing this because I don't see a red light on. Is there supposed to be a red light on this, George? Okay. Red must mean bad in this case. I don't know. Who pays attention to the warning lights anyway, right? He gave me this because apparently I was wandering around too far. So what we'll do is we'll uh, turn back to Hebrews. So we started our study there last uh, Sunday morning, and I apologize for any miscommunication I may have made, but uh, the, uh, the Lord willing, we'll, we'll carry on in the study uh, beginning last Sunday and then this Sunday morning. And then I have a few weeks off, and there's some Thursday evenings coming in February where I'll, where I'll resume. I think that's correct. So, uh, <laughs> and then... Uh, there's a couple of Sunday mornings following those Thursday evenings. So it's a little bit scattered. You're going to have to, I guess, remember. Uh, but it's nice to spread it out over some time so we can think about it in between as well. I hope that everybody had an opportunity uh, to take a look at portions, at least, of the book of Hebrews. And if you uh, were able to read through the whole thing, I trust that you were blessed as a result of that. Um, I know some had reported that they had, and I appreciate the enthusiasm for for some of the good questions that came up. So as you know, I'm going to try and sort of stuff it into a fairly small time frame, really. So if I skip over a verse, do you say, boy, did he skip over that verse on purpose, or is he just, because uh, he doesn't know what it means, or, or um, is he skipping it for time constraints? I hope it's for time constraints, but if there's one that we want to handle, please come and mention it. So, just a quick recap then. From uh, Now, John, did you say that clock's not right? Or that it doesn't move? It moves, okay. And it's, it's fairly good? Okay. I'll go with it, that one then. So, just a, a quick recap then from last, last week. What we were talking about is that um, to get a sense of the book of Hebrews generally, it's, all, it's important to have the context in mind as you go. And what we said was that the audience of this that this particular uh, letter was written to is not really known, but we concluded based on the scriptures we looked at that these were real live Christians. These, these weren't apostate uh, Christians. They were real Christians that were, were believers in the Lord Jesus. We pointed out that it said that they were uh, holy and partakers of the heavenly calling. And so on. There's a number of verses we looked at. Uh, secondly, we notice that uh, the author is not mentioned there as, as in some of the other New Testament epistles, like the apostle, uh, the apostle Paul often introduces himself as as Paul the apostle, not of men but of God, and so on, and they're thereby imparting that credibility to what he's about to tell them. Hebrews is different. It doesn't include that at all. It starts with God having spoken. And in chapter 3, where we'll get to today, it does refer to an apostle, but it's the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Okay, So that's really the emphasis of the authority. The authority is the scriptural record of the Old Testament and the, um, uh, the word of God that was spoken and Christ the apostle. Um, but we do know that whoever it was, was a companion of Timothy, uh, that he was uh, coming there from Italy. Timothy had just been released from prison, and the two were going to come together. 
It makes sense, I think, doesn't it? Can you imagine when uh, they first got this letter in the mail and they read it to the assembly uh, that there might have been a few questions? I mean, there have been questions on the book of Hebrews for a long, long time. So it makes sense, doesn't it, that they said we'll be there shortly to follow up on this. You almost wish you could have listened in on that part, but it's not there for us. So we're just going to have to go with the letter as it was written and work from there. We said that the purpose of writing was the fact that these Christians in the nameless location really had to um, face the fact that though they had been believers for a long time and had every reason to know what they were doing and uh, what the scriptural record that they had meant, that they really hadn't gone, gone on well. That is, that they hadn't uh, continued. They'd grown lazy. They were just kind of glad to be Christians and glad to not be going to hell. And, well, what else could there be, right? And so they pressed on. And, and this actually came to, uh, there came to be a number of problems as a result of that, not the least of which is there were sins that the, uh, the writer here was going to identify later on that they needed to turn from. And that the main emphasis is that uh, we're not saved just to escape hell, but rather we're supposed to go on to perfection. And that's something that we'll stumble across many times as we go through the book of Hebrews, that, that we're actually to go on to perfection. I hope we get why we're Christians here. For Christians, that it's not just to escape a fiery judgment that's coming upon this world. And an internal one that comes upon all, all those that, that never respond to uh, Christ's uh, to Christ's love, but rather it's to be much more than that to grow. I hope you realize that you're in training now. So the salvation that we're talking about uh, today is not just a one-time entry through a door. Salvation is what we're living in. We're living in a this state of salvation. All right, so his purpose in writing was to exhort these ones to get get back on their game. And I've just summarized it like this, to beware. So he offers some warnings to look up, that is, to consider Christ in a number of his different facets, and then to go on to perfection. And then we looked at the style of the book. We noticed it was a little different. It was kind of like a preached message. There was, there was many Old Testament quotes through it. And... Um, with explanations and, of course, an application like a, a proper good message has. You don't want to go away and just say, well, that's lovely, just more information. The idea is that we're changed by it. This is what the scriptures were intended to do. And so I laid it out kind of like this as far as I saw it uh, as delivered, that there was basically a... Um, the first chapter has this introduction where where God is speaking. These are the commandments of God. He has spoken in these last days by His Son. His Son, who, by the way, is heir of all things, who is seated at the right hand of the Majesty on high. The Son is the key to everything that's going on. And then uh, He goes into a few... Uh, some warnings here, and really, these are the ones I'm going to try and cover today. So, all the warnings. And in the in this outline, uh, the writer 
he goes back and he, he quotes a number of scriptures. And I've listed which ones he quoted there in length. And then he adds a few others in, sprinkled in to kind of emphasize the point that the scriptures are uh, unanimous in, this, in what I'm telling you here. And in fact, what we'll try and do, or what I'll try and do as we go on here, is point out that the New Testament is is also unanimous in the things that Hebrews is saying. It's not unique to Hebrews, the, the things that are being stated here. So, um, he warns them regarding salvation being neglected and rest being unentered. So, we're going to talk about what those will be. And then he goes on and, and he has them looking up here. And he says, this is what the Old Testament talked about what was really going to come. And it was a, a something different than the shadows that were there beforehand, right? And then there's a bit of a pause right in right in here, and he asks a few hard questions, and he points out a few hard things, and I haven't noted it on here. It's kind of a the transition between between this is what has happened, and and the transition there is really this is where you guys are. And you, that you're not going on, but there's a way to get back on your horse. And then he explains how to how to keep going here. And then he concludes his letter as or his uh, the message as he goes. So that's this is the application point. And so all of these things we read through these, um, you know, chapter eleven, the faith chapter. It's there so that we will walk in faith. The idea is to notice how these fellows had walked in faith before and to do it. So our lives must be marked with uh, faith. And that's what chapter 11 is. We'll get there as we go. Though. So I should press on. <clears throat> and we're going to turn to the first warning. And as I said, well, let's turn in the Bible here to chapter 2 and we'll read a little portion. Uh, I don't know if I have time to read the whole portion, but <clears throat> first we'll start in verse uh, 1 here. So chapter 1 again has pointed out that, that Christ has superseded and and has set at the higher place than anything that's come before that they were that the children of Israel had been aware of. <clears throat> and so therefore he starts with Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. I guess we could stop there for a moment. The idea of neglect of God's salvation. Now when we come to these passages in Hebrews, people have kind of looked at them in distress and come to a couple of conclusions which I would suggest you need to try and avoid. And one of them is this, that, that because it seems as though there's a really hard outcome that we're not willing to accept, either this is speaking to people that aren't really Christians and so therefore doesn't apply to us, 
right? Um, or it's speaking to Christians, and we are in, in grave danger of falling and losing our salvation. In which case, we maybe don't have a right understanding of just how great our salvation is. And so, when you think of neglecting something, it means, I mean, if somebody neglects their body, there's consequences, right? Uh, Their health goes down and and there's consequences. If somebody, uh, say you've enrolled in in school, some, some schooling program, and you neglect your studies, well, there's consequences in the end, isn't there? You don't wind up with the uh, credentials that you had hoped for. You don't have the information, the understanding to be able to use it for anything. Suppose, uh, I mean, everybody has relationships. Uh, If you neglect your marriage, what happens? Well, sometimes it just peters right out. But um, even if it doesn't do that, it it can go on for a long, long time with, with no real growth or progress. In fact, at some point, it's, it's possible even for people to, you know, wish they weren't in it. So that happens because of neglect. And the idea of neglect is that uh, while at one time it was the most important thing to me and I understood why I was here, so think of that in the context of school or relationship, over time, because other things have gotten in my way, I've, just, I've no longer have considered those things in that way. So, as he, as he begins here, he says that our salvation is like that, in that if you don't work at it, like your school or your relationship, if you don't work at it, there's going to be consequences. You're not going to grow. You're not going to thrive. You're not going to remember why you were in it in the first place. So, of course, chapter 2, um, what he does is he goes through and explains, and he uses Psalm uh, 8 to do so, but we'll just notice here first. He draws them back to the reason why. So maybe this is a question that you've asked yourself. Why am I a Christian? Why have I believed in the Lord Jesus? Is it only to escape the the lake of fire? I hope it's far more than that. And that's what he does here. He doesn't doesn't hold your feet to a fire. He raises your eyes up to look at the big picture. So first of all, I just made a point here that the reason why the salvation you have is is far greater than that which was spoken beforehand through angels, was that it comes with far greater proof. So in verse 3, again, look, uh, it says that at the first it began to be spoken by the Lord. The Lord Jesus came to this earth and he had a great message of, well, it was salvation. I mean, there there were their sins to deal with, but he he really came first, didn't he? Promoting a kingdom. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. He said. And they were quite interested in this. And they knew that there was a, that this was the king coming. But you know, the only ones that really received him as that were the ones that had nothing. 
remember those uh, the, the two blind men on the um, in Jericho, I think it was, and uh, they said, "Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me." They had a sense of who this was. He was a son of the great King, and uh, even the the one malefactor on the cross there. Remember me when you come to your kingdom. They had a sense, didn't they? These ones who were the low place that that this was one who came with a bigger message, one that goes on further. There's something coming yet. And so it began to be spoken by the Lord. And then it says it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So here's one of those verses, by the way, which indicates at least that it wasn't one of the twelve that walked with the Lord Jesus, because the ones that heard him reported them to those who then passed it on. So uh, it was confirmed by those that the Lord Jesus taught directly. And then you'll notice it says, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders. And for those early days, the transitionary period we read about in the books and Acts where signs and wonders followed, the idea there was that God was confirming what he had been stating through Christ. He said, now these ones here are telling you the same thing. It's no different. Notice, because I'm in it too. And that's the idea there. And then it says, and with, very, um, with various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And I would suggest that that presses on even into the gifts now given to the church. All right. So he has evidenced to his people in these ways what he is doing. So let's go on and read then um, the next portion here. There's a greater purpose. <clears throat> now, he begins in verse 5 by saying, He has not put the world to come of which we speak. So he's, he has been pointing towards a future day in subjection to angels. You might get the idea that, that God's plan is to have angels rule the universe. Not so. Not so. As a matter of fact, David uh, was musing one day as he was out looking at the stars at night time and, and he would uh, pen these words found in Psalm 8 which are quoted here in verse 6. But one, that is David, testifies in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. This is David's view. He was amazed. David, who was given a kingdom, a kingdom that he was promised would, would not have an end. Right? And here he's looking around and he says, I can hardly believe that man is put in charge of this. But you, God, have done that. And as we think about the big purposes of God, We'll just uh, why don't we just turn over to First Corinthians six? Keep your finger here. We'll be coming back. Keep my eye, one eye on the clock at the same time. First Corinthians six reminds us of this big, big idea. And so this this is a little different context, but he he draws on the same argument that you're going to a place where you'll be responsible to make big decisions. Decisions that are regarding other others. Notice chapter 6 and verse 2. 
do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are, and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Uh, thought being that what we are doing, I don't know if you ever got the idea that going to heaven is floating on a cloud and doing nothing. But it's not like that. There's something to be done and there's responsibility. And really, David is discovering here that, that what we are in, the salvation we are in right now, is a training ground for what's to come. He realized that as a child of God, your purposes are great. You're, you're being groomed and trained for the family business. So back to chapter... There's other places we could look, by the way, that talks about what's coming next, but uh, only those to, to um, indicate it right now. Now, there will be a problem that you notice right away, that while we have this greater purpose, the issue is, well, sin, frankly. So... Adam was given charge. He was told to look after things. And sin came into the world. And death by sin. And so, death is passed to all men for that all have sinned, says the Scriptures. And, uh, and so then, the writer here, after thinking about what God had promised through David in the Scriptures, he says this in verse 8, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, that is, under man, but now we don't see all things under him. Have you noticed that? We're not as in charge as we think we are. We look around the world and we've made a, a terrible mess of it. And in fact, we don't see man in charge and in control of everything that goes on around him. He might think he is. He's not. But what we do see is this. Verse 9 says... <clears throat> Uh, but we see Jesus, made, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So, our salvation has a greater provision. So, as our obvious problem of sin, and how are we ever going to solve that, into that problem steps the Son of God. And this one who has the highest place descends down and takes the lowest place, lower than angels, it says. And what we discover here is there's two things that are, are going to be part of his sojourn, and one is sufferings. Notice verse 10 there. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing, bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It was important, it was fitting, it says, for the Lord Jesus, in order to be a proper captain, a perfect captain, to suffer being tempted while he's here. And so we want to realize that this is the process through which we must go as well. It's a suffering period. Living in the flesh has a purpose. You might not like it. Um, because at the end of that, there's, there's death that faces us. Uh, there's 
There's the trials of this life, whatever they may be. The list is fairly lengthy there. But as, as a result of it, we don't like that necessarily. But the purpose for this is so that we can trust our God. And so our provision is this, that, that He, well, it says that He, in verses 14 to 15, why don't we read those? Actually, I shouldn't skip that far ahead. Notice the quotes He uses here. He took on, not, not angels, but He was made in the likeness of men. Verse 12 says, he quotes the, uh, the psalmist, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in, in you. There's two things that we learn of Christ when he comes here. That, that he was completely okay with taking this place, not just being made lower than the angels, but, but he was found in fashion as a man. Right? His place was lower than that. He was actually changed Found in fashion as a man, it says. Flesh and blood. And so as a result of that, he partook in all the things that you and I would. So a body, uh, sufferings, death, temptations and trials. All of those things he endured in order for him to be made perfect. And when we say made perfect, what we're talking about is, really, the, the theme of Hebrews is to go on to perfection. So he came along. Of course, his testing was only 40 days in the wilderness. Children of Israel was 40 years, you recall. And testing, testing is what we are in now. He was pretty quick about it because, well, he was the Son of God. And he... Always did the things that please the Father. That's verse 13. I will put my trust in Him. So therefore, let's... I'm kind of quickly skipping through here. But notice what happened as a result of Him descending into death. It says in verses 14 and 15, Inasmuch then as the children of partake in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise shared in the same, that through death He would destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through their fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And then verse 17 says, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So the Lord Jesus endured temptation and has therefore become what the Scripture here says is the great high priest. Now, I want to just notice a couple of things about the high priest was in verse 17, he was both merciful and faithful as a high priest. So, I was thinking about that, and the Old Testament high priest, I don't know that his job was to be merciful. His job was to administer justice, really, and uh, God's job was to be merciful. So the priest came and brought the offering. He sprinkled it on the mercy seat. That was the, the, the priest couldn't offer mercy outside of any other regulations. Uh, but mercy came from the Lord, and so he would accept 
this this means of access. But Christ here, because He had offered Himself once, has now He's now able to be Himself merciful. This was the shocking thing that in John chapter eight, the woman who was brought in adultery by the Pharisees, they said they, they were really looking for the Lord Jesus to be a high priest and uphold the law of Moses in that sense. And so what is deserved for somebody that's committed this crime? Well, stoning, they said. Isn't that true? And so that the Lord Jesus himself offered mercy to this woman and they they walked away and she was told to go and sin no more is an, is an evidence there early on of what he was going to be for us. One who was merciful and faithful. I suppose that falls in line with what Paul said when he said uh, that he would be both just and the justifier of those that believe in Jesus. So, he's, he's able to be faithful as well as merciful. So, Verse 18 says that um, he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are, who are tempted. So in our wilderness journey here, that's what we face. Neglect of this great salvation is what causes us to, as, as it said there, um, well, slip, drift away. And there's a penalty to be paid. There's a cost that comes with that. And we want to think about that. So his, his provision for it is to consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. So considering him, we, we observe the Lord and that he made it through all of these phases, tempted yet without sin, is now at a place where we have access to him. We can come to him and say, well, I'm tempted, but I do sin. And so he, as a, a merciful and faithful high priest, can, can keep this on the straight and narrow. Despite my obvious failings and my propensity to, to drift and wander away, to not recognize that what he has called me to is the greatest thing imaginable, remind me again of this great relationship I have, this great responsibility that is coming, that I do need training to get there. And so this is why we are to consider the Apostle and High Priest of our Confession. So let's move on to the second warning here. So In the first one, he, he's really made the provision, hasn't he? He's provided what we need knowing our frailty. In the second one here, he says, now what you need to do is beware of another problem, not just you have a tendency to forget and look at other things. But worse than that, perhaps, is is a heart of unbelief. And that's why the chapter in Hebrews 11 is kind of critical because it demonstrates that faith is an action word. If you read through there, by faith everybody did something. They said something. It moved them. And as a result, they demonstrated by their faith that God could be trusted. That's why the Lord Jesus would be quoted here as saying, in thee do I trust. That was the whole point. And so, do we trust our God? That's the question. What we're supposed to do, and this is why it's important to recognize that Hebrews is, 
is as real for us today as ever, is that our heart tends to not want to walk and trust our God. When He brings us through hard things, we, we see hard commands. We say, well, I don't know. Nobody else is doing it. And the reason we want to be aware of this tendency we have is, is he says, he, use, he pulls an example, doesn't he? So go down. We're going to scan quickly down to chap, uh, chapter 3 and start at verse 7. And we'll just read this quote. This, he's quoting David here from Psalm 95. And he quotes David. Now you remember that several hundred years after the event that he refers to. But David says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness. That was children of Israel, the Lord Jesus, both the trials in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me, saw my works forty years, therefore I was angry with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Alright. So, what do we take from that? Well, now the, the New Testament writer takes David's exhortation and the illustration from the wanderings in the wilderness brings them all up here and says the problem is still the same. Throughout the book of Hebrews, you're going to be interested to notice that like other the New Testament epistles, what you don't really find is, is the writer pointing outwardly for the problem. You know, beware dogs, wolves, uh, false teachers, false prophets, uh, Judaizers, you know, the circumcision and so on. doesn't point outwards at all. Do you know why? Because the problem that he's concerned with here is inside. It's, it's in here. And that's where he's going with this. He says, beware, brethren, lest in you... Your evil heart still has tendencies towards not trusting the Lord. And remember why this is important is because what the children of Israel's purpose again was. They were to be trained and then they were to be brought into a place and represent the Lord there. To dwell in the midst of a people, the peoples around them, and to be a testimony and a witness for God. That God can be trusted, and all you people out there, you you have turned from Him to idols. That was that was their job. Well, you see how how crazy that that idea would be, because they themselves came in the midst and joined in that idolatry and all the rest. So, what we want to think about is what does this un, this heart of unbelief look like uh, for us today? What what was the illustration he was pointing out? First of all. I want you to know this, that it's a daily fight. I don't know how often you check to see that you're in line with God's ways. But it's a daily fight. If it's not a daily activity for you, then, then consider yourself in danger, as, is, as we're going to go on to see. Verse 12. So the writer here says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today. So, he latches on to that very first word in the text that he quotes, and he says that today means today, every day, 
you're going to need to look at your own heart and analyze it and check it and make sure. And that was that's the problem that they faced in the wilderness. They didn't do that. And you see what it says. It says, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. All around us is sinful activity. And as we gaze at what is around us, and we feel like the trials of the Lord are too tough for us, well, what happens is we start to say, I don't like it out here. Why have you brought me out here to die in this wilderness? That was the complaint in Israel. And this was what unbelief uh, resulted in. Because they couldn't trust the Lord in, well, what was it? We couldn't. They learned how to trust him to cross over the Red Sea, right? Stand still and see his salvation. But then, well, how's he going to give us water? There's nothing out here. Well, what about food? How's he going to provide food? How, how's he going to, what about better food? Because I loathe this light food. On and on and on. And they would circle around and they, it would seem like they would never learn. Can you believe that? Well, believe it, because we circle around and we don't learn because the Lord provided for us uh, last year. I don't know if he can get me out of this one. I don't know if he can still provide. That's an, an evil heart of unbelief. And unless we check it daily and exhort one another to do so as well, then we're going to uh, be, be hardened so that when opportunity knocks, Satan knocks on the door and says, you know what? Your God can't be trusted. Follow me. He'll say, hmm, you know what? He hasn't really helped me out lately because we've been hardened by that. So that's the idea of today. It's a daily fight. And then he goes on here, and the second thing I want to point out uh, is rest to come. So what do we mean by rest here? Notice, first of all, that... Um, Verse, verses 16 and we'll read verses 16 to 19. That the reason they didn't enter rest was because of unbelief. This is the conclusion of these verses. He points, and he says, for who having heard rebelled, so you'll have to read about that rebellion sometime. Indeed, was it not those that came out of Egypt led by Moses? It was the ones who were led out of captivity by Moses is who it was. With whom was he angry? A little battery. How is that possible? Um, it was those that were let out that were... Uh, he was angry with for 40 years. So it wasn't a one-time event. It was actually over a period of time that they continued to rebel. And they're corpses, it says, fell in the wilderness. They died there. And then it says it was because, in verse 18, that they didn't obey. So, we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. The writer here is saying it was their unbelief that kept them from transitioning from the wilderness uh, into the promised land. They, they died there in the land. Um turn over just uh, if you would please keep your finger here we'll come back quickly but turn over to um, 1 Corinthians 11 and know this that 
where I'm going to get to, just as I'm watching the clock drain on me, where I'm going to get to is that the idea of rest here is not um, is not the rest of of being saved from hell. All right, it's a rest still to come, and you and I are not at rest in that sense. But the danger, because you're wondering that, I can tell. Well, First Corinthians is backwards. Okay. First Corinthians 11, and it says this that uh, in verse, let's start at uh, verse 28. It says, "But let a man examine himself." So that was the idea of today: a constant, continual examination. Let a man examine himself. So let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for he drinks. Eats and drinks in an unworthy manner. Eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So this is one way to do that. And he points out in verse 30, For this reason many are weak and sick, and many sleep. For if, he would ju- if we would judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. So I draw your attention here um, to... To point out that for the Christian, there are things to be lost by not walking in faith. Alright? The, the things to be lost are rewards to come. Uh, here we see that there's, uh, there's people who are, are sick. There's some that are just are weak. They're weakened because of their, their lax attitude. Their, their uh, unbelief is causing weakness in their walk. They're not actually going to make it out of the wilderness. They will die in the wilderness, so to speak, having never finished the purpose for which the Lord put them here. That's what's being spoken of here. And it says, now it doesn't mean they lose their salvation. It's, he's clear to say that in verse uh, 32, that we may not be condemned by the world, you'll know, or with the world, but the idea is we rather suffer this, this death in the wilderness, this weakness, this sickness, as a chastening activity of God. That's the rest we're talking about. So turn back to Hebrews quickly, please. And uh, we'll just notice a couple of other things to emphasize this. Go down to verse... Uh, 8 of chapter 4 and he points out that obviously it wasn't the rest of entering the promised land he was talking about because if Joshua had given them rest he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Well there's the end of the PowerPoint anyway. (laughs) He would not have spoken of another day. idea was that the promised land was not the rest. What was the rest? Well, just up a little bit. Notice that he brings in a verse from the beginning here for our help. And it's in, in verse 4. He says, For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Down to verse 9 and 10. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. The rest being spoken of here 
is the rest of your work completed. Paul would write to Timothy and say, I fought uh, the fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. Not the only, but all those who love his appearing. There's those that will love his appearing. They'll receive rewards, a crown for it. And there's those that will not. Those that will not are the ones that are marked out here. It also, um, it also describes the idea of the judgment seat of Christ elsewhere. Speaking of there, the uh, works being burnt up, the things that we were busy about while here, they're burnt up. Yet, he shall be saved, but so as by fire, it says. The idea is, is the rewards day is, is not going to be as shiny as he had intended for you. Not everybody is going to finish the work and enter rest in that same way. Now, we want to get on to this last part of chapter 4 and notice that he has, uh, he's going to conclude this section of rest. We've got to read from verses um, 11 to 14. And I apologize, I'm already over my time. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Be diligent to enter the rest. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So, the Word of God is the key thing in order to be able to check ourselves. I often, for a long time, I guess since I first learned this verse, I understood it to be a gospel verse and that God's going to bring everybody into account. And so we use the sword of the Spirit, and as we do so, the Word of God will convict the loss of their ungodliness and they will. They will repent before the Lord. And that may be true as well. But the context here means that for us, the Word of God is supposed to be alive, living and powerful, and sharper than a sword that kills people. Because this kind of a sword is going to deal with the problem that Paul speaks about in Romans 7. Where he says he's got this constant battle going on. His flesh and his spirit warring against uh, themselves. And he, and he recognizes that the, the battle must be won by the Lord. You can read Romans 7 and, and see that. But here he points out this way, that it's the Word of God that is going to be the thing that is going to separate the things that we cannot that is, between what our flesh thinks of things, our soul thinks of things, that re- which responds to our emotions and everything, and what our spirit, which is given by God now, to, to lift us and make us a new creature. If you have not the spirit, by the way, it says you're none of this. But the thing that discerns between those two, to help me to know what is right and what is not, is the Word of God. 
It's living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. So what we do is we pour over the Word of God and we allow the Spirit of God to enlighten our, our eyes. Now what do we do then? So now I know what I've done wrong. Or now I know that I, my thinking's wrong. Now I know that uh, I have let the Lord down. Well, he goes on and he says then, verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our, com- our confession. For we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What do we need mercy for? We need mercy for our unbelief. And we need His grace to help in our time of need. This is really the understanding of these these two warnings. That we have just a tendency to be lazy. And we have a tendency not to beware of our dangers and constantly check the Word of God. Exhorting one another daily to keep going. Pointing each other to the Scriptures because sometimes I say, well, I think I should do this and I think I should do that. And I, I feel like that's what the Lord wants me to do. When we start feeling that's a dangerous place, the Scriptures will guide us. All right, The Scriptures guide us. And so this is the uh, I think the way we need to understand these chapters. The rest to come is something we must look forward to. Paul would say it like this. I press on to apprehend that for which I'm apprehended. Alright, well, let's close in a word of prayer. Ask the Lord to help us in this week to come. Our Father in Heaven, we want to come to You and confess first that sometimes we do uh, find ourselves lazy concerning uh, the Scriptures. We don't look through them, pouring over them to find Your will and Your ways to understand more of how how wonderful Your Son has been to us, what He has done. Uh, the fact that He is, presides over everything there is is not a single thing that's not manifest in Your sight we read here. And, and we want to confess these things knowing that it's possible that that our weaknesses, our sicknesses, even even death early is a result of, of our unbelief. Taking out of the game in order to... Um, preserve the testimony of the Lord here. We do thank You that You have saved to the uttermost those that have called upon You. And our prayer is really to help us to see. We thank You for the fact that we have one another. pray You would help us to encourage one another along the way. Surely You have gone to great extents to bring many sons to glory. Many put in that great place. We we uh, sometimes uh, sing that song, and is it so? I should be like thy son. Is this for me the grace which he has won? Well, Father, we do uh, thank you and commit each one to you now. Give us help in the week to come and uh, encourage us as we study thy word and seek after Christ. We give you our thanks in his name. Amen.